Good morning, church. Good to see you guys. Good to be with you. Um, we, uh, uh, of course, are one church in three locations, and those other locations are Carpinteria and Ventura, and they're checking us out, so let's give them some love. Uh, man, what we do here every week together is so important. This gathering to, for, and around Jesus. Because you know life, like life is just weird, right? Like, I don't know how your week was. Like I, I had an incredible week, like tons of just blessings in my life and good stuff and good times with friends and family and fun and overflowing with blessings. I had an incredible week. And I had a horrible week. Like at the same time. It was like awesome. There's all this great stuff. And then just all this really bad stuff. A lot of it due to my own sin. The consequences of my own sin. And some of it not due to my sin. Just circumstances and other people and stuff. And gosh, life is just like that. It's so inconsistent and up and down. Can anybody relate? Just like awesome stuff. And then just, oh, this sucks. This is horrible. And, but you see, there's this constancy in our lives who is Christ. Christ is this one wonderful constant in our crazy lives. And these things that, that we learn when we come together, when we gather, they're so good for just fixing our perspective. I mean, the, the truth that we learned last week in, in the word of God, that, that we are chosen from before the foundations of the world, that, that saved my butt over and over again this week. Like I just beginning to just despair and be bummed about something, overwhelmed, and then just think, wait, I am chosen by God. I am, I am the beloved of God. I, I am accepted and adored by God in Christ. And everything else just pales in comparison to that. Can, can I get a witness? Do you know what I'm talking about? It's just like... It just makes things okay to know that we are loved by God. It really does. And so what, what we do here is, is so important. And these truths are so important. I hope you're ruminating on them throughout the week. They really will affect your life. They, they really will. Um, we've got a featured resource that I want to share with you guys. This is a book that's affected my life profoundly this year. It's called The Ragamuffin Gospel by Brennan Manning. And uh, this is my copy. You can see it's got all sorts of tabs in it and stuff. Um, I've been basically carrying this book around with me for the last five months or so. Uh, read it a long time ago, but I keep returning to it almost every day. I find myself opening back up to it because it's just a wonderful explanation of the love of God the fatherhood of God, the work of Christ on our behalf, and what the love of God means. And it really dispels some of the, the misconceptions of it and really deals with some of our identity issues. And we're studying identity issues right now. And it's just done beautiful things for my heart and um, my, my, my life endeavor of enjoying Jesus. This book has been tremendously helpful for that. And uh, I avoided it for years. I had heard a lot about it and I, I avoided it um, because it didn't seem conservative to me. It didn't seem like a book that conservative Christians would read. And I'm a conservative Bible-bashing Christian. And uh, I just, I just kind of prejudged it. And uh, it, it's really wonderful. And, and there are some ways that he says things, Brendan Manning, that will kind of 
you know, rustle some of your, your conservative feathers. And uh, that's okay. We conservative Christians need that from time to time, get our little feathers rustled. But, but there's nothing doctrinally, you know, that, wrong that, that we would take exception with. But some of the ways he says things, you're like, oh, that's such a weird way to say it. Oh, but I like it. It's, it's good for my soul. So hopefully this book is helpful for you. It's available uh, at the resource table at all of the... Um, campuses. I quoted from it several times last week, and I'll, I'll actually read a little portion of it today, Lord willing, when we get there in the text. So I hope that's helpful for you guys and that it blesses you. Let's open up now to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, we are con- continuing, excuse me, in our series, Identity Issues, God's Glory in Us Through Christ's Work for Us. And the title of today's message is Abandonment and Adoption. Abandonment and Adoption. Let's just read a few verses. Uh, We're going to be looking at at verse 5. We're just taking one verse a week until we get to verse 14. But let's just read verses 3 through 5 right now. Paul writes and says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. And then today's verse. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do. And it gave him great pleasure. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth that is before us. This truth about the person of Christ that has saved us. This wonderful, glorious truth that daily saves us, that, that we are loved by you in spite of us. That before we ever had an opportunity to do anything right, or anything wrong, you already chose to love us and adopt us and make us your own. Thank you, Lord. I I need this truth in my heart and in my mind. I need to hear it again today. I need to meditate. I need, and we need your Holy Spirit to come and make application in our lives. We need, Holy Spirit, you to come and minister this truth deeply to our lives because, Lord, we're overwhelmed by our own sinfulness. We're overwhelmed with our own brokenness and the way that we break things continually. But we want to be more overwhelmed with your love and your healing and your redemption and the way that you embrace us continually. And so Holy Spirit, please come, come speak to us, come teach us. We ask together that you'd please anoint me for your glory, that everything I say would be for your glory and consonant with your word and according to your will. And that we would be a transformed people. We need Sundays, Lord. We need the teaching and preaching of your word. We need this time worshiping together. We thank you that we have a savior and he loves us. Speak to us about these things, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we as people have a lot of needs, legitimate needs. One of the most basic needs 
that we all have is the need for belonging. It's one of the most basic, legitimate human needs. We have this need because God created us for belonging. We were created to belong. An expression of this is in the garden, God saying about man, it's not good for man to be alone. God looked at everything he created and over and over in the Genesis account, he says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then he says, but, but it's not good for man to be alone. Man needed someone to belong to and someone to belong to him. And that's at the ordination of God. This basic human need of belonging. This need for belonging is why God created family. It's why children are born with parents that they belong to. It's why God wants to preserve the family unit. It's why God says in Scripture, I hate divorce. I hate divorce because it breaks the belonging that God has ordained. That God has created. This thing of belonging that's so important is the reason that God expresses in Scripture special care for the fatherless, for the orphan, for the widow, for the, for the alien, for the stranger, for the outcast. God expresses special care and concern for them in Scripture because they need to belong. We were created to belong. And when that's broken, when we in some way don't belong, then things go wrong. And one of the greatest tragedies of sin is that it breaks the experience of belonging. One of the greatest tragedies, among others, of sin, one of the most devastating effects of sin, is that it breaks the experience of belonging. Evidenced by the fact that when Adam and Eve sinned, God banished them from the garden. God said to them, go away. You don't belong here anymore. That's illustrative of the fact. That's an illustration of the fact. That's a picture of the fact that, that what sin does from the perspective of God is it breaks the experience of belonging so that when Adam and Eve sin, when humanity falls, God says, go away. You don't belong here anymore. And since that time, humanity has both perpetuated and suffered from a sense of not belonging. From the feeling that we have by someone at some time, in some way, been abandoned. And this sense and its associated feelings and challenges and thoughts and hence behaviors, this sense wreaks havoc on humanity. I, I mean, think, think about belonging just, just in the sense of one human relationship. Think about belonging just in the sense of father. Okay? Think about belonging just in the sense of father because that's really what the text is about is God as our Father who has adopted us. So think about belonging just in the sense of Father for a moment. What does a break in belonging and, ex and, and the experience of abandonment with regards to just this one relationship, Father, do to society? 
Well, I mean, here's some stats. 63% of all youth suicides are from fatherless homes. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. 85% of all children that exhibit behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes. 80% of rapists motivated with displaced anger come from fatherless homes. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. 75% of all adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers come from fatherless homes. 70% of juveniles in state-operated institutions come from fatherless homes. 85% of all youths sitting in prison grew up in a fatherless home. Now, obviously, there are many complicated factors behind these issues facing society. But there is one obvious common denominator, isn't there? And I say this to illustrate the point. That we were meant to belong. And when that's fractured in some way, then things for us go from bad to worse. Especially, but not only, as it it pertains to the father relationship. And we, as humanity, intuitively know this, that we need to belong. We intuitively know that. And that a broken experience of belonging hurts deeply. And, and, and so we have a tendency to fear abandonment. Well, I have a tendency to fear abandonment. Because we fear abandonment so greatly is why we put up with abusive friends. That's why we put up with abusive spouses, family members, roommates. We believe that the pain their presence causes is better than the pain their absence would cause. And so we choose to suffer in all sorts of ways to avoid a sense of abandonment, to avoid a sense of not belonging anymore. This is why, to just illustrate the point, this is why within the Christian community, within the church, we often do two wrong things. One, we pretend to be better than we are because we're afraid if people knew what we were really like, we we wouldn't be allowed to belong, right? So we all come to church just BSing our way through it. We all come to church pretending to be better than we are because we're afraid that we won't belong somehow. And then the second error, sort of an opposite error, is that we fail to encourage one another to live better lives than we do because we're afraid that if we confront each other, we won't be allowed to belong anymore because we'll have offended somebody by by speaking the truth in love. And these two, in equal opposite errors in some way, are misappropriations of self-love and overcompensations of our need to belong. Rather than accepting who we are and being who we are, we mask who we are. Rather than spurring one another on toward love and good deeds, we tolerate destructive behavior within the Christian community because we love ourselves too much to be honest with others. You see, on the one hand, we don't love ourselves enough, so we feel that we have to mask who we are to belong. And then on the other hand, and simultaneously, we love ourselves too much. So we wouldn't dare confront somebody about their sin because we're afraid that they would be mad at us. 
and abandon us. And so in self-preservation, we shirk our Christian responsibility. And so we find that relationships in life is all tussled about by our need to belong and our fear of being abandoned. Whether it's in marriage or with parents or family or peers or in the Christian community, we fear abandonment, the possibility of no longer belonging. And, and what fear of abandonment really is, is a sense of powerlessness. A sense of powerlessness. This person might leave me and I, I can't do anything to stop it. This group might banish me and I can't do anything to keep it from happening. And so we live in certain ways, in certain contexts, in fear and anxiety. And it causes us to act in untrue ways, such as masking and tolerating. Where we shouldn't mask and where we shouldn't tolerate. And we desperately then find ourselves trying to please and appease people so that they will stay with us. Even when it's abusive and wrong. The pain that their presence causes has got to be better than the pain that their absence would cause. And so we please and appease. And this is not just an issue between humans. This is true especially as it pertains to God. You see, Scripture declares that our sin has actually made us worthy of abandonment, banishment, and not belonging before God. Back to the garden. Leave the garden. You don't belong here anymore. Our, our sin has actually made us worthy of abandonment, not belonging, banishment. And Scripture declares that we are powerless to do anything about it. Right? Abandonment is powerlessness. Scripture declares that we are powerless to save ourselves. There is before God, for humanity, this sort of ultimate sense of powerlessness. And for the person that realizes his or her sinfulness and his or her accountability before God, and that they are powerless to save themselves, fear, fear of abandonment, and ultimate abandonment sets in. That's why just about everybody fears death. That's why just about everybody fears death because there's this deep common sense in us that there is a day of reckoning. That there actually will be a judgment. We truly hope that there is a day of judgment. It helps us to cope with the atrocities and the wickedness we see in the world. We just don't hope we're going to be judged. But we know, don't we? And we know most assuredly on our deathbed there's this common sense within us placed there by God that there is a day of reckoning. And the fear is that we may discover on that day that we don't belong in heaven and we have been abandoned to hell. This was the subject of that famous song by Eric Clapton, Tears in Heaven. He wrote the song when his four-year-old son, Connor, fell 53 stories from a window in New York City and died. And he wrote the song about seeing his son in heaven. But the resolve thematically and, and the refrain lyrically is, I know I don't belong here in heaven. 
Eric Clapton there expressing for all of humanity that, 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 that fear that there's this day of reckoning and we may discover that we don't belong in heaven and that we've been abandoned to hell. But scripture declares to humanity that we have a rescuer. That we have a savior. A savior from this very real fear. And when we begin to recognize this, we, we cling to verses like 1 John 4, verse 18, I believe, that says, perfect love casts out fear. And, and we use that verse for all sorts of things any time we're afraid. But really, it's in the context of judgment. It says, perfect love expels all fear. If we're afraid, it is for fear of punishment. And this shows that we've not fully experienced God's love. Perfect love, speaking of God's love, expels all fear. If we're afraid, it's because we have this fear of being punished for our sins. And if we're afraid of being punished, it proves that we have not yet experienced his perfect love. And what the text of Ephesians 1 is trying to convey is this radical love of God. It tells us, in the verse we looked at last week, in the verse we're looking at this week, that God loves us and chose us in Christ from before the foundations of the world that we would belong to him, to God, through Christ. That we would be, as it says, adopted. We were predestined to be adopted. Now, adoption then becomes one of the ways that Scripture speaks of our salvation. And what this metaphor means to communicate is that we have, when we put our faith in Christ, repent of our sins, put our faith in Christ, we have been brought into a love relationship with God, whereby we understand Him as Father, and He deals with us as children. Allowing God to redeem the concept of father. Because we all have messed up concepts of fathers. All of our fathers were messed up and, and we're all messed up fathers. But through Christ we've been brought into this love relationship with God. Whereby we, we relate to him as father, perfect father. And he relates to us as children. Messed up children. And the main thrust of this concept, adoption, is belonging. And employing this metaphor, what Scripture wants to do is tell you that through Christ, when you repent of your sins and put your faith in Him, you have ultimate belonging. Belonging that supersedes every human relationship, that is greater than every fear of rejection. Adoption speaks of belonging. If it means anything, it means that we belong. The text says that he adopted us into his own family. Not speaking of humanity in general, but his own family as a father brings us into it. And he brings us to himself, it says. He brings us to himself 
an intimate relationship through Jesus Christ so that we know that we belong. And the gloriousness of this is that prior to being saved by Jesus, we didn't belong. Some of you are here today. You don't belong. Not that you don't belong here. We're glad you're here. But you don't belong to God. You see, humanity wants to think that we're all children of God. This is a popular mantra, right? We're all children of God. And we use it in all sorts of manip manipulative ways. But Bible doesn't, the Bible doesn't declare that we're all children of God. In fact, when we get to Ephesians chapter 2, if we get there, Lord willing, we'll learn that we are children of wrath. Not children of God, children of wrath. It says in the New Living Translation, by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger. Romans 5.10 says we are enemies of God before coming to Christ. Ephesians 2 verses 11 through 13 says that we were outsiders, living apart from, excluded, far away, without God, without hope. And Romans 1 says repeatedly that we were abandoned to sin and its effects by God. And Jesus said that we were headed for a place where there was outer darkness, total exclusion, and weeping and gnashing of teeth, absolute abandonment. Far from everybody being God's children, just because you're human, we're actually children of wrath. Enemies, outsiders, excluded, far away, abandoned, banished. But when John begins to tell the story of Jesus, he says very early on in his account, in the 12th verse of the first chapter, he says, but to all who have received Jesus and believed in Jesus, to them has been given the right to be called children of God. To those who have believed in Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us, and received Jesus through faith and repentance, to them has been given the right to belong, to be called children of God, to be adopted. Because of what Jesus did, not because of what they did, but they themselves, having believed and received through faith and repentance, become children of God. Have you become a child of God? Unless you've repented of your sins, and put all your hope in Jesus and expressly asked him as the only unique savior of the world and the son of God to save you, then you haven't become a child of God. You don't belong. And you are longing for ultimate belonging. It's the source of the restlessness and the terror in your life. The tossing and the turning in your night. It's because somehow, somewhere deep inside, you know you don't belong. But Jesus comes that we might be adopted. And, and the concept of adoption that Paul would have referenced here wouldn't it have been Jewish. Adoption was not popular in Jewish culture. It was very popular in Roman culture. It would have probably been a, a Roman backdrop to this metaphor here of adoption. Because what happened in a Roman law was when, when someone was adopted by a Roman father, they had all the rights of a natural son or daughter. All the same rights. By law, you could not treat them differently. They were brought in and they had all the rights. Whereas previously, a day before, they had no rights 
to the life of the Father. They were on the outside. They, they had no rights. But, but the Father adopts and brings in, and now they have every right as a natural child. Whereas previously they had none. This is the idea that's being gotten at here by Paul. And we only have this, this total connection to God through Jesus Christ. And being united with Christ by faith, we share in his divine sonship. Not in the sense that we become divine, but in the sense that we become sons and daughters of God in Christ through Christ, because we are united with Christ. And so as sure as Christ is the Son of God, we become sons and daughters of God. And, and then we call God Daddy. We call him Abba, Father. Romans 8 says the Spirit, the Spirit in us, the Spirit of God in us, those who have been saved, causes us to say, Abba, Father. Abba is Aramaic for daddy. Now, we can only say that, we only use that grammar, we only have that, that ease and closeness of relationship because that's what Jesus has with the Father. You see, in the Old Testament, there's 39 books in the Old Testament. It's, it's the bulk of the Bible. It's big, right? You haven't even read it. It's big. In the 39 books of the, uh, of the Old Testament, God is only addressed as Father 16 times. And 39 books. And those are impersonally. And those are always corporate in the sense of all Israel saying God is our Father. But it's always this impersonal sense and it's only 16 times. But you see, Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus begins to speak of God and address God exclusively as Father. In the four Gospels, 60 different times. 60 different times in the Gospels. Jesus refers to God as Father. And, and he didn't use the formal term, as I said. He used the Aramaic term that would have been used by little children to their fathers, Daddy. And, and Jesus refers to the Father as Daddy exclusively, exclusively in the Gospels. All but one time. There's only one time where he doesn't refer to him as Father. It's when on the cross he quotes Psalm 22. And says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was in the moment where Christ was abandoned that we might be adopted. That is the only time he doesn't say daddy is when he was abandoned on the cross for my sins, that I might be adopted into his family. And Isaiah would prophesy and say of Jesus, he was pierced for our rebellion. 
He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. So that that most horrific result of sin, abandonment and broken belonging are reversed through the cross of Jesus Christ. So that we are made whole and we are healed having been adopted and now belonging. And Jesus the Son willingly endured abandonment as Son in order to secure our adoption as sons and daughters. And all of this glorious truth, God decided to do it all in advance. He predestined us to be adopted. To predestine means to decide in advance. God decided in advance before he spoke the world into creation, before you ever did anything good or bad, God decided in advance that you would be his, that he would adopt you, bring you into his own family and bring you to himself through Jesus. For the New Testament writers, predestination is simply the way of saying that our whole salvation from beginning to end is a work of God. It's not that we're robots. It's not that we're puppets. It's simply saying that the whole of our salvation from beginning to end is a work of God. He chose in advance and he carried it out. It communicates to us that there's nothing we could have done to save ourselves. If you're still trying to save yourselves through good behavior, through hoping that your good stuff outweighs your bad stuff, you are doomed to ultimate abandonment, absolute unbelonging. Can't save yourself, but we've been given a rescuer. We've been given a savior. And it's all of God's doing because he loves us. He predestined, chosen advance to bring about our salvation. God has acted in Christ to do all that is necessary to bring us to himself. C.S. Lewis said that salvation is a change from being confident about your own efforts to the state in which we despair of doing anything for ourselves and leave it all to God. So we are brought into close relationship with God through his own choosing through Christ. He loved us before we ever existed. He loved us before we ever existed. It, it, it can't be that he loves you because you're lovable. Not that you aren't. In my eyes, in each other's eyes, but it, it can't, that can't be why. Because before you ever existed, he chose you. The closest analogy that we could possibly get in humanity is a new baby. Right? So many people are having babies in our church right now. Your son just had one. So many people are having babies. And when you, when you, when you, when you, when you get this baby... Man, you love this thing. This thing hasn't done anything 
to merit your love. But, but the moment a father or a mother holds that baby, it is an overwhelming, all-consuming love. It, it hasn't done anything good. What has it done so far? It's cost you money. It's severely damaged and hurt your wife. What has it done? It came out looking horrific, most likely. And yet you radically love this little thing. Before it ever does anything, you lay in bed at night and, and, and you put your nose in his or her little mouth just to smell their breath, don't you? And you just want their skin against yours. And you just love when they start to get the big fat cheeks. Right? Because you just want to bury your face in those cheeks. Daisy loved when she was a baby, had the biggest cheeks. They were like this. Like, almost hit the ground. Almost she couldn't crawl because just dragging cheeks. Almost. And, and the, the delight of my existence was to kiss those cheeks. And you know, when you kiss them, you start just nudging your way in and pretty soon you're under the cheek and you're like between a roll of fat here and a cheek here. I mean, if you haven't had a kid, you don't know jack nor squat, but let me tell you. <laughs> it's the most unbelievable thing in the world. That love. It's the closest analogy we have to the way God loves us. Before we ever existed. Before that baby has done anything to merit love, you see it and you love it. It's an imperfect, an imperfect analogy, but it's something like that. And then what, what these children do is they, they just bring us great joy. Until they become teenagers, they just <laughs> bring us tremendous joy. So that verse 5 says, concerning our adoption, our sonship, our daughterhood, it says, this is what God wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So that when God represents himself in Scripture, it's as a father who when the prodigal comes home dirty from being in the pigsty, the father runs to him and embraces him. And literally in the Greek, he falls upon his neck and kisses him over and over and over. Just like I used to kiss little Daisy Love over and over and over again on her neck because she was so precious to me. This is how God feels about you. This is what he wanted to do. You don't like predestination? This is what he wanted to do. God. And it gave him great pleasure. He rejoices over you. Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 17. For the Lord your God is living among you. He's a mighty savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. 
You're his baby. You're his little boy. You're his little girl. You're, you're his adopted children. So that our identity can no longer be formed by fear of abandonment. Our self-understanding can no longer be, oh, I don't belong. I've been rejected. I, I've been excluded. Those things may be true in the human realm, but they are not what is most true about you. What is most true about you is you are chosen, loved, predestined, and adopted. And that God rejoices over you. Brian Chappelle says, predestination was never meant to be a doctrinal club used to batter people into acknowledgement of God's sovereignty. Rather, the message of God's love preceding our accomplishments and outlasting our failures was meant to give us a profound sense of confidence and security in God's love so that we will not despair in situations of great difficulty, pain, and shame. So that this week when life isn't right, and your failures are great, and your shame seems overwhelming, you can say to yourself, but I am chosen and adopted. And when you fear condemnation, when the weight of guilt is heavy upon you, you can say, but his perfect love casts out fear. Because Christ took my punishment and was abandoned by the Father on the cross for a time that I might be adopted and loved for all time so that we have no relational fear with God. And the Christian must remember that the Christian life is fully about God's love for us and not our love for him. We do love him, but, but he first loved us. And in the error, please hear me on this. Please hear me on this. The, the error that we often make is, is that we think somehow God's love is like our love. We, we think that somehow when, when we're sensing that we don't love God enough, that, that, that he maybe doesn't love me enough. As if he's your, your, your fickle wife or something like that. Brennan Manning, in, in the book I commended to you earlier, pictures God as saying this to us. Don't ever be so foolish as to measure my love for you in terms of your love for me. Don't ever compare your thin, pallid, wavering, and moody love with my love, for I am God and not man. In predestination, the truth of this text is the shout, the shout that reverberates through all of prehistory and history and eternity of God's love for you. And we all wrestle with the doctrine of election and predestination and some of the questions it creates. But the more immediate and pressing reality is the wrestling we face daily concerning our wickedness and our failures and our sin and our shame. And these questions are answered in election and predestination. Where God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Before the world was made, I called you my own. You are mine. You've always been in my heart. No matter what happens, I have chosen to love you since before the world began. You are mine. That is what God says. 
and predestination. I'll finish by saying this, this story. When my son was born, Isaiah, my firstborn, I can still remember when I first held him. And all those things I've been, been talking about, the, the, the overwhelming sense of love. And he was actually really good looking when he was born, but this, this, just this over, nothing I'd ever felt before when I first held him. And the first thing I did after holding my son for that initial time was apologize to my parents. I went to my mom and dad and said, my, I never knew you love me this much. I never knew. I never understood the love of a father, the love of a mother. And I said, I'm sorry because if, if I would have known that you love me this much, I would have lived differently toward you. You see, God's, God's love for us makes us want to live differently toward him. If we in the slightest begin to comprehend how much he loves us, it, it does anything. It does anything but urge us toward a looseness with sin. It, it, it makes us desperately want to live rightly toward him. And when we don't, when we fail, we don't have to be afraid because we know that he loves us. With an everlasting, eternal, beyond time and space, before we ever existed, never ceasing, unstoppable love because we are his own. And so that when we fail, instead of fear, we, we relate to the Father like Jesus related to the Father because we're, we've been brought to him through Jesus. Jesus didn't relate to the Father as judge. He didn't relate to the Father as spy or disciplinarian or, or punisher. If you read the Gospels with this eye, you'll see that it was a very tender Abba, Daddy relationship. And then as we go on in life, knowing this love and letting our core identity be beloved, the beloved of God, we realize that we don't have to accomplish anything in life to gain acceptance or approval or because we're afraid of being abandoned. But we will accomplish much in life because we've been so wonderfully loved by the Father. Thank you for this truth, God. Thank you for the way this changes everything. Holy Spirit, Scripture says that it's your job to minister the love of the Father to our hearts. And Holy Spirit, words have escaped me. I, I've none to even begin to get at the Father's love. But we ask now that Holy Spirit you'd come, that this would be a very holy time. The Holy Spirit, you'd come.
and minister the love of the Father to our hearts. And that it would heal us and settle us. That it would free us and put us at ease. That it would make us whole. And that it would give us great joy. Come Holy Spirit.